0: Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students and physicians in training, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. Coming up on today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Amitabh Chandra of the Institute of Medicine's Committee on the Governance and Financing of Graduate Medical Education to discuss his insider's perspective on the method behind the perceived madness of his committee's recent recommendations for improving medical residency training in America. GME right now
1: is essentially a helicopter cash drop on the recipient hospital based on a formula that rewards hospitals that were incredibly costly in the 1980s there's virtually no economics underneath the current reimbursement system and if the current reimbursement system for graduate medical education does not help residents if you wanted to help residents you'd convert it into a loan forgiveness program
0: more from this candid exclusive conversation with an architect of one of the IOM's most controversial and potentially impactful reports in recent memory right now on Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm John Corker. Today, we continue our exploration of the meaning and potential impact of a recent landmark report published by the Institute of Medicine's Committee on the Governance and Financing of Graduate Medical Education, or GME. As a reminder from Part 1 of this series, the Institute of Medicine is an independent, nonprofit organization that works outside of government to provide unbiased and authoritative advice to decision-makers and the public. According to its website, the IOM... Quote, asks and answers the nation's most pressing questions about health and health care. In 2012, recognizing an impending crisis in access to healthcare across the country, the IOM commissioned a special committee to examine how physicians are trained during their three to seven years between medical school graduation and independent practice, called residency. Recently, after two years of research and debate, the IOM committee finally published their recommendations for an improved, more sustainable GME program. These recommendations have been highly controversial, including but not limited to calling for a freeze and a 10-year phase-out of federal support for GME, increased accountability and transparency measures for this support, and for the creation of two new federal committees to oversee the governance and financing of GME going forward. Today, in Part 3 of this ongoing series, I sit down with Dr. Amitab Chandra, one of the authors of the IOM's recent report on graduate medical education that meets the nation's health needs. Dr. Chandra is a professor of public policy and director of health policy research at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, as well as an award-winning researcher and elected member to the Institute of Medicine. He is also a member of the Congressional Budget Office's panel of health advisors, and his work has been featured in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, Newsweek, and on NPR, among other national outlets. I started off the interview by asking Dr. Chandra to share his insider's perspective on the specific problem with which his committee was tasked to address with its recommendations. Dr. Chandra, welcome to Radio Rounds. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So if you could start off just by telling us from an insider's perspective, what was the overarching goal of the IOM's Committee on Governance and Financing of Graduate Medical Education, and and how did you become involved in the process of writing the report? So the
1: charge to the IOM committee was to review the financing and governance of graduate medical education and make recommendations for improving it. The overarching task was to figure out the extent to which today's GME system is helping to produce a workforce that is ready to deliver the kind of care that we would like um, physicians to deliver tomorrow. The committee recognized very early on that GME by itself cannot really transform all of American healthcare, but it could play a substantially
0: important role given the importance of how physicians are trained. What was the problem then that was posed to the IOM committee? What was seen as deficient, if you will? If you could elaborate a little bit more on, um, you know, what was seen as needing to be improved in the current GME system.
1: Well, think about it this way. Current GME receives an enormous, absolutely enormous amount of taxpayer money. So there's a huge subsidy flowing from taxpayers to Large academic medical centers to ostensibly produce residents. And then the question is, are we getting, what are we getting for the money, taxpayer money that we're spending on graduate medical education? The narrative that you will hear from the AAMC, which is a trade association, it's not a, you know, it's, they're not thinking about patients or taxpayers, they're thinking about American um, is the American Association of Medical Colleges, so it's going to represent the interests of, of medical colleges. Their view has historically been that we need GME dollars because there's going to be a physician shortage, and if you don't increase GME dollars, then that's going to exacerbate the physician shortage sometimes they will say that there is a geographic maldistribution of resources. So you have some physicians in some areas and and less in others, and so you need GME dollars to do something about that maldistribution. The third motivation that they give us for GME financing is that these monies are actually valuable for clinical research. And then the fourth is that perhaps the patients who are seen at academic medical centers are sicker than average, and so the current reimbursement system doesn't adequately compensate academic medical centers for the caseload that they have to see. But at the end of the day, these are four arguments that the AAMC has made year after year, but we don't really know if they're right. We don't really know if these arguments withstand the kind of scrutiny that we would ask a pharmaceutical manufacturer or device manufacturer um, you know, gee, does your drug benefit – is your drug so valuable that it should get $19 billion worth of funding?
0: Sure, and it's it's exactly that uh, conclusion that was drawn in the report that there – at least in the words of the report, there was no credible evidence for a physician shortage, either current or impending across America – uh, that's been so controversial because groups like the AMC have been very vocal uh, for years, talking about both current and impending shortages uh, and advocating for expansion in, in a number of areas through a, num- a variety of avenues. How exactly did the committee come to the conclusion that the evidence provided by AMC and a number of other organizations really didn't cut it? It's
1: very easy to come to the conclusion that there isn't a physician shortage, simply by examining what the AAMC has put out. What the, double, the way the AAMC predicts a physician shortage is by assuming that today's inefficiencies will continue forever and that the population will grow. And so if you've got inefficient health care and more people needing inefficient health care, you're going to need more doctors. That's basically at the heart of their forecasting model. And with those assumptions, they're absolutely right. There will be a shortage of physicians. However, what their model doesn't account for is the fact that there are often productivity improvements to what physicians can do. Take, for example, something like telemedicine. Telemedicine by itself is not the kind of productive innovation that's going to transform American healthcare, but it's an example of an innovation that would allow physicians to do more for less. And there's nothing in the forecasting model that allows for an innovation like telemedicine. And so, again, it's another way of saying if you've got a forecasting model that allows for no productivity improvements, then we will find shortages. If we had estimated a similar model for fax machines and corded telephones and coal, we would have found huge shortages. These models would have predicted enormous shortages of fax machines in the year 2014 because we never allowed for the technology of the Internet to appear.
0: Well, and that's a very interesting perspective. Uh, and and one of the other, uh, you know, if we can step back a little bit, one of the other points you made is is from the IOM's perspective, kind of re exploring what we are getting uh, out of the enormous public contribution being made to to the training of resident physicians. You know, you're an economist, and, and Dr. U. Reinhardt is also a, a famous economist who often uh, writes for the New York Times and other publications, recently uh, wrote an, an opinion paper kind of challenging uh, the commonly held belief that that the work of, of doctors, and specifically resident physicians, uh, constitutes a public good. Uh, that's another topic that I talked about with Dr. Grover. Uh, earlier in this series, what are your thoughts on on if and and how and and maybe not, uh, the work of physicians and and uh, specifically resident physicians constitutes a public good or or, as the distinction was made by Dr. Grover, at least a uh, a social good?
1: Well, it is a social good to the extent that health is a social good. i don't know if the act of training residents by itself is a social good. It's really what they produce that's a social good. It's not a public good because in the language of economics, a public good is a good that you can't exclude other people from consuming. With healthcare, we exclude other people from consuming it all the time. So if we've got 15% of the population that's uninsured and don't have access to healthcare, right there, we've figured out a way to exclude people from, from healthcare. And so the act of training residents doesn't rise to the level of being called a public good. I think the classic example of a public good is like a lighthouse, which is sitting on the rocks and ships can see the lighthouse. You really can't exclude a particular ship from availing of that lighthouse. And so, you know, the lighthouse is an example of a public good. But any anytime you can exclude someone from consuming something, and we do that with healthcare all the time, it becomes impossible to call it a public good. So now we start to cycle or circle or pedal backwards and and we say, well, gee, maybe it's not a public good. Maybe it's a social good. What is a social good? Um, Is a social good something that benefits a lot of people? Well, I mean, iPads then would be a social good. Is a social good something that helps people um, perform at their capabilities? Then education would be a social good. Is all of healthcare a social good? Um, I think that Calling these things labels is all a way to sidestep that difficult conversation around what are we getting for the $19 billion that we're spending. It doesn't matter if it's a public good or it doesn't matter if it's a social good. It's a very simple question. $19 billion of taxpayer money go to American hospitals every year. The reimbursement formulas for those, for that money is antiquated. It's three decades old and it makes absolutely no sense. It's hospitals get money for direct medical education in a way that compensates hospitals that had higher costs in the early 1980s. So if you were, had sort of higher costs in the 80s, you get more money today. What economic model would justify that? So my role on the committee was really to ask questions like, how do we build a case for the $19 billion that we're spending? How do we build a case as opposed to come up with labels for that case? Because the minute we come up with labels, then we don't have to do the difficult arithmetic. We can just sort of congratulate ourselves and say it's a public good, it's a social good, it's valuable, it's transformative, and not really answer the question, which is on taxpayers' mind, which is for $19 billion, there's a lot of other wonderful things that we could purchase. We could purchase education. We could purchase health care. We could insure the uninsured. We could pay more for new medical innovations. Why should we pay for graduate medical education?
0: Well, and, and what was the answer? Uh, you know, what, what conclusion, even if, even if preliminary and perhaps incomplete, did you help guide the committee to as far as that, that overarching question of what are we getting from that $19 billion? So the economist's answer is that we really don't have any idea what we're getting from the $19 <laughs> billion.
1: That's not to say that's different than saying we're getting nothing from the $19 billion. We just don't know. And it seems like that's an awful lot of money, to be spending um, without knowing what we're getting. Now, a few things we do know. We do know that graduate medical education has nothing to do with the salaries of residents. That's been known for something like 60 years in economics, that if at the end of the day, we want to help residents make it through residency and not be affected by the crushing medical debt that they confront Then the way to deal with that is a direct loan forgiveness program, structured a bit like the Pell Grant program, where we say to you, gee, you're a resident, you're a resident in an area that we want more residents in, let's give you a direct loan forgiveness program, or a grant that you can take to any hospital. That's not the way GME is structured right now. GME right now is essentially a helicopter cash drop on the recipient hospital based on a formula that rewards hospitals that were incredibly costly in the 1980s. There's virtually no economics underneath the current reimbursement system. And if the current reimbursement system for graduate medical education does not help residents. If you wanted to help residents,
0: you'd convert it into a loan forgiveness program. So would that loan forgiveness program or those uh, grants be in addition to the resident physician's salary or in lieu of? It would be in addition to Okay. Uh, and you mentioned that that would be a way to, to help resident physicians get through residency. Uh, but let's right. Take- Here's what I worry about with today's medical students. You guys are really smart.
1: You have lots of options. You could enter a extremely lucrative career in law and finance. And my guess is that it would be even more lucrative to enter law and finance than it would be to enter medicine.
0: We and always so- say if you want to make money, don't enter medicine these days. There's a lot yep. easier ways to make it.
1: Well, if, as you know, you've read my research. I mean, I've shown that physicians have really seen no real increase in their earnings since, the, since about the year 2000. So physicians' earnings in real terms have stayed completely flat. And that's not true of the rest of the economy. So we need to make sure that the best and the brightest are going into medicine all the time. The current system of encouraging the best and the brightest to go into medicine is not going to achieve that. Right now, if someone is accumulating four years of medical school debt and then has to earn 40 or 50 or 60,000 dollars as a resident for three or four years, there are many people who will say, I would rather enter a career in law or finance. So if we want the best and the brightest to go into medicine, what we need to do is create incentives for them. And the way we create those incentives is to give the resident the grant to stay in medical school and to finish their residency, not the hospital.
0: So you mentioned some really uh, intriguing ideas for for not only how to help get residents through residency, but also at the front end to encourage, you know, the best and the brightest and and ostensibly the most diverse uh, applicant pool to medical school. But let's talk about those thousands of medical students now each year uh, that aren't matching into residency because of this disconnect between uh, highly skilled graduating medical students and the number of residency positions available. Is that disconnect addressed at all in the IOM report? Uh, And how do you think that these medical students should approach uh, their increasingly uncertain future?
1: So what is addressed in the IOM report is the fact that giving more graduate medical education dollars to academic medical centers has nothing to do with the number of residency slots. So you might say, what? What did you just say? Let me try to explain the number of residency slots has nothing to do with graduate medical education dollars. This is a narrative that the AAMC has put together. If you look at the f- enormous freezes and reductions in GME funding after the passage of the balanced budget agreement in 1997, the number of residency slots still increased Something like 20%, somewhere between 18 and 20% at a time when there was no additional funding. There were decreases for graduate medical education. The number of residency slots is something that hospitals can fire up and fire down at their will. They may not get additional Medicare dollars for every slot that they open or close, but they're free to open as many slots as they want, and they have.
0: Well, and that's really interesting for me because I'm a I'm a an emergency medicine resident at uh, Parkland Hospital at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, and we're the county hospital, and, and and we treat most of those who don't have access, and we're increasing my class from 18 to 22 residents next year. Uh, that's so right. so learning how that works and how we're able to do that in one of the most cash strapped environments in healthcare is really intriguing. I, at the end of the day, if we want
1: more residents of a certain type, those positions will will open up organically as long as there's actual demand for those physicians. So, in other words, if tomorrow's reimbursement system said that we need more emergency room medicine physicians and we need more primary care doctors and there's great demand for those kinds of doctors, then residency programs will find it lucrative to open more positions in those areas. Right now, we don't see demand. And so that's the reason that residency programs have not flourished in those areas. But you certainly see residency programs um, expand well beyond the current caps on their own organically in the procedure-driven disciplines.
0: Well, certainly a lot of interesting points to think about, especially during a time of, of unprecedented change in healthcare, care, uh, especially as regards this report from the perspective of medical students and residents. Dr. Chandra, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Amitabh Chandra, award-winning health economics researcher and primary author on the Institute of Medicine's recent report on graduate medical education that meets the nation's health needs. For more information on the IOM, a complete rundown of their report on GME, as well as a helpful webinar hosted by the chairwomen of the committee, please visit our website, www.radiorounds.org, where we'll include a direct link to the appropriate portion of the Institute of Medicine website. Join us in the coming weeks as we switch gears a bit and take a look at the growing Ebola crisis worldwide. Radio Rounds correspondent Dr. Imran Ali will sit down for an exclusive interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci, a global leader in the response to this epidemic and director of the National Institute on Allergies and Infectious Disease, which is beginning phase one clinical trials for an Ebola virus vaccine. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit www.radiarounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage, providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. AMA Insurance is pleased to introduce an individual disability insurance plan called Essentials for MedPlus Advantage participants. Through this plan, eligible graduating medical students have a special one-time opportunity to apply for high-quality individual disability insurance with no intrusive or time-consuming medical exams and only a few basic questions, now with discounted premiums. Apply now as the enrollment period ends soon. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and have a great week. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day, I'll be your doctor.